Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt podcast. Each month, we will bring you the latest findings in Egyptological research and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Islamic, Coptic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. To suggest a topic for this program, please email us at podcast at rc.org. We are also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including virtual lectures and tours, by visiting our website at rc.org. You can also support our work by joining our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. This episode will continue our Kingship in Ancient Egypt series and will focus on the New Kingdom. It will feature Dr. Yasmin El Shazli, RC's Deputy Director for Research and Programs, in conversation with our guest, Dr. Betsy Bryan, Alexander Badawi Chair in Egyptian Art and Archaeology at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the episode. We are very pleased to have with us today Professor Betsy Bryan, who will be talking to us about kingship during the Egyptian New Kingdom. Professor Bryan is the Alexander Bedawi Professor of Egyptian Art and Archaeology at Johns Hopkins University. Her areas of specialization are art, history, art, and archaeology of the New Kingdom. Her current fieldwork is on the temple complex of the goddess Mut at South Karnak, and her research focuses on defining the earliest forms of Mut of Isharu. Thank you so much, Professor Bryan, for accepting our invitation today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'll start with my first question. Most non-specialists think of ancient Egyptian culture as static. It is true that it changed relatively little through the ages. However, changes did occur in all aspects of Egyptian culture and society, including royal ideology. What do you think are the distinguishing features of royal ideology during the New Kingdom? Well, that's really a, a, a very big question and certainly fundamental to understanding kingship in the New Kingdom. I, I think that it is less that the ideology of kingship expressed different ideas than that it emphasized the traditions of kingship somewhat differently than it had before. So for example, the divine genealogy or, or divine birth of the king was a primary theme uh, of royal ideology in the New Kingdom. Although the king had been the son of Ray, the sun god, since the fourth dynasty, very, very early. And his, that was one of his titles, the son of Ray. But kings in dynasties 18, 19, and 20 were repeatedly given epithets in addition to their titles that called them the son of Amun-Re, for example, um, and the son of, of uh, Nut, all sorts of uh, references to the king as the direct offspring um, of the gods. Um, and the kings then took this pedigree um, and um, equated themselves and their nuclear families with the gods themselves. 
Um, so they were really promoting a view that they should be seen and understood as the earthly representations of gods, especially in Thebes, such as Amun-Re, his wife Mut, and their offspring Kansu, the moon god. In the north, um, they would be equated with the god Ta at Memphis, um, his wife Sekhmet, um, and their offspring, Nefertim, and likewise around the country uh, in each and every major, major cult place. So probably the one that we see the most plainly in, in the uh, New Kingdom uh, beyond the Theban uh, example is at Abydos, where Seti I um, is so plainly recognized um, as a god himself um, who is the offspring of Osiris and Isis. So I think that that is in so much more emphasis than you have seen in periods before. And the kings, in a sense, were quite successful in exploiting that particular aspect of their ideology. Probably the second most important would be the roles of New Kingdom kings as military leaders. It's impossible to uh, not to mention this because it is the period of their creating an empire where they engaged troops from Nubia in the south and troops from the northeast in, uh, in the Levant. And as a result, they not only did the, they defeat these enemies, but as a result, they could prove to the gods that they were legitimate pharaohs who were defeating the enemies of the gods. And they took the opportunity with the wealth that came from these victories to build enormous buildings, primarily temples, and to place on the outsides of those temples scenes of themselves um, killing their enemies uh, in foreign countries. So that royal ideology of the king as military uh, victor, um, who is not only protecting Egypt, but also expanding Egypt's territory is certainly part of uh, a major part of its ideology. That's very interesting. Thank you for a wonderful answer. My second question is, well, Egyptologists believe that the royal ka was the divine royal essence that was passed on from one king to the other. Can you please talk to us about this concept and what it meant? <laughs> yeah, well, there are almost as many views on the royal ka as there are Egyptologists walking the earth. Um, and uh, so I, I do feel like this is a bit of a difficult concept to try to convey, but when we put it into the context um, of kingship, it's important to think of the Ka um, as a divine aspect and spirit that is a continuous existence, has a continuous existence. And for kings, moves um, with a new king um, from perhaps the past rulers into the new ruler. I think that it would be an interesting question you know, as to whether there is any definition of the size of Ka, because it doesn't seem to eliminate Ka, 
when it moves from a deceased king into a living king. And instead, it seems to be um, a force that is throughout um, existence, but can be collected and moved um, into a king um, in order to pronounce him and show him, show that he is uh, the designated ruler. A lot of times we talk about there at perhaps Luxor Temple being a temple associated with the royal Ka and a place where the kings received the confirmation and bestowal of the royal cause upon and after their coronation, sort of in a yearly reaffirmation. And, and this may very well um, uh, may very well be the case, but I think that it's important to note that we do not have enormous amounts of texts that really clarify what this process was from the ancient Egyptian point of view. Some things have been identified that suggest the presence of the Ka, and one of those is a large ostrich uh, feather fan that can be used as a sort of uh, protective device. Um, and when it's included in a scene, it often seems to indicate the presence of the royal Ka. And I think the other aspect that we need to bear in mind is that the Ka is a life force and it has with it an ability to continue and rejuvenate. So when it moves from, from the living to the, uh, and then when one dies, it does actually cease to operate for a while. So a deceased king has to be rejuvenated and then his Ka lives again. So the Ka is obviously an important point and only kings and a few gods have multiple Ka's. They are, when the king is created and by the gods or conceived, he should have not only his Ka, but an additional double Ka. And then as a king, as a true king, he may have up to 14 uh, of these Ka's that each of them bringing a specific and additional power to him. So it's a multi-pronged concept. Um, both people and gods, um, men and women also had Ka's, um, not just kings and gods. But it does appear to us that the royal Ka had special powers that actually demonstrated that this was the legitimate person to rule Egypt. Okay, so how does a usurper of the throne legitimize his rule? Well, I think that the important point to remember is that it is an office. Mm -hmm. It's not a person. And kingship was created that way from the very beginning. Um, it, it's one of the reason it has all of these titles associated with it. So that um, although someone may be identified 
um, as having been uh, a ruler in the egg, as the ancient Egyptians um, might have written in many texts, that person could easily be a usurper. It's just that he was destined for that office and no one knew it until the time it was ex uh, exposed to the world and revealed. So actually, usurpers would not have had such a difficult time. I think it's actually probably the case that there are more usurpers out there than we are aware of because the kingship as an office covers it up so well. In fact, there is a, a very famous literary text from ancient Egypt that specifically describes uh, the kingship in this way and says, the kingship is a perfect office. It has no son, it has no brother who can make its monuments endure. Though each man ennobles his successor and each man acts on behalf of him who preceded him in hope that his action may be affirmed by another who comes after him. So that is how the office of kingship actually operated. It, it was dependent upon that constant continuity of the office that brings the ka into it. So even a usurper will then be have the royal ka bestowed upon him or sometimes her um, uh, who, who uh, holds that office. I, I have always been fascinated by the idea of, you know, the divinity of the king, how divine is he? Is he a real God, an actual God or an intermediary to the gods? And for example, you have, you know, you know the king was, we, we believe was an intermediary between humans and the gods. And, uh, but we do have instances uh, where uh, kings have themselves deified and depicted worshiping their, their divine selves on their monuments, like Amenhotep III and Ramses II, for example. So who do you believe was the target audience for such scenes and what was the purpose behind them? That's a great question. <laughs> who was the target audience um, for scenes uh, of this nature? I think that almost any time th that we have a temple scene, the target audience is is a god, and because um, they are the primary inhabitants uh, of a of a temple. And when you see Amenhotep the Third worshiping the god Nebmat Re um, at Solab in Nubia, it is very likely that he gives power, additional power to that God himself, of himself. And it is a God that represents him through his worship and through his offerings. So every time that an offering is made to a God, um, there is a, a sense of it pumping up the importance and strength and perhaps even material capability um, of, of that deity in the same way that you think of uh, funerary offerings as being the way that you keep someone alive in the next life. So I think that that is the primary target 
audience um, for uh, for these kings in making such in creating such scenes. Those scenes are actually the I would say the minority of the contexts in which we actually find these so-called deified statues um, of rulers. And I, I, I would like to, to throw in here that in most cases, what we are seeing, even the scenes on walls, we are seeing representations of images of those deities, not of the deities themselves. And the, it became quite common in the, in the New Kingdom for cult figures, figures that were worshiped to be created that could be worshiped by a variety of people. And no one knows this better than you yourself because this is what you wrote a wonderful book about the, the king, uh, the deceased king, uh, as intermediary for people. And I think that this operates in a larger context with kings such as Ramses II and Amenhotep III, who actually took something that had in a way been utilized for, for people in general to access and have the help of, of an intermediary such as a deceased ruler. They took it and utilized it themselves as a means of creating enormous statues of themselves that could actually be worshiped and prayed to as a divine force and as an intermediary for anyone who, who wanted to, to access them. And in, I think that Ramses II made it quite plain because he even named these statues um, with very specific names. Amenhotep III did name his statues, but not quite so many. It is a, um, a fascinating kind of way in, in which these kings could claim a form of deification, both both in a place like Nubia, where they could simply be a god because um, they were not uh, recognized by the local population um, as being simply someone in between. But at home, the use of the statue cult meant that there is a divine power uh, of the kingship in, the, in that statue that creates a form of deity. I'm one of those people who does not believe that kings were deified for real. I do not believe that Amenhotep III at any point became a god, but I do believe that he used every single other method, such as the statue cult, um, for projecting himself as closely as possible to that.
You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. More information about our operations and programs can be found at rc.org. And if you would like to support the RC podcast, please visit rc.org slash podcast. We will now go back to our episode with Dr. Betsy Bryan. We, we spoke about Ramses II deifying himself. There's something else that Ramses II did a lot of, and that's usurp other his monuments of his predecessors. Many kings did that, some of them simply by adding their own names while leaving the names of their predecessors intact, while others removed the names of their predecessors and replaced them with their own, and sometimes even altered the facial features to match their own, like Ramses II, who did both. Um, can you ex please explain why? Like, why would they sometimes just add their name and sometimes remove the name and alter the features? Well, I truthfully, I don't think we know the answer to that question. I, I mean, I, I, I think in some cases it's expediency that you, it's very quick to simply add your name. Um, it's almost as quick to simply remove someone else's name and plaster in and carve your own. Um, what takes time is to actually alter the features uh, of an image, as well as to obviously uh, then change the uh, inscriptional um, material. And, but I think that there is uh, an impetus for, uh, for all of those things to happen. And when I was working many, many, many years ago um, on my dissertation, I worked with two statues that were in the shape of Osiris uh, statues in mummy form. And they, one of, they both had the name of Ramses II on them that was replacing the name of King Thutmose IV, um, whom I was writing about for my thesis. And however, one of them had the original face of Thutmose IV, and the other one had been completely recarved into uh, an image of Ramses II. And they both were from the same place. So it's almost as if there is a a decision that can be made um, that the king makes clear his intent by doing a, a sort of complete changeover. And then the additional material that's nearby can be done in a much more uh, uh, limited fashion, but have some of the same uh, meaning attached to it. I mean, that's, that's purely um, uh, a sort of guess um, as to why you would have done that in in that particular uh, in that particular instance, but I think it's important to, for us to note that Ramses II's um, artists who did this work were very sophisticated, and we don't know who gave them their marching orders exactly, uh, but in many cases there is more than one portrait style for this king. And sometimes when he did usurpations um, and took over and recarved faces, um, they were deliberately styled to recall uh, an earlier ruler, particularly Amenhotep III. Um, 
And, uh, but in other cases, they might choose a great king of the 12th dynasty, such as Senwazrit I. So there's a very clear intent, and not to mention the fact that, of course, kings are taking other people's statues and putting their name and their face or, or a version of their face on it. Um, they want a portion of that person's ka, of that person's identity as royal ka for themselves. And the same with taking over Senwazrits and any other ruler that they take over. It is really meant that the king can partake of all of those kings and be all of them uh, to the next group. So there also, there's a desire to associate themselves with these past rulers when they, you, so they're not just taking their stuff, they want to associate themselves with them. It does seem as if that is the, that is behind the choices made. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that we need to be careful not to call usurpation a good thing. Um, you know, kings are indeed still taking someone else's monument. Um, and when they don't just add their name and leave the other ruler's name, there is a level at which you must call that usurpation. But I think it's important, but what you've said, I think is exactly right, that what they want is to have a part in that legitimate continuity of kingship and to particularly be seen in connection with kings such as Amenhotep III, Senwazrit III, Thutmose III, um, all of these um, rulers of the past whose monuments and whose deeds were well known uh, to people. We've spoken about the divinity of the king. The tomb of Tutankhamun, for example, testifies to the wealth of material that a typical royal tomb in the Valley of the Kings would have contained. However, most of the tombs were found empty, their contents uh, having been robbed since the times of the ancient Egyptians themselves. So how would you reconcile this with the king's divine status? The, the idea that people from ancient Egypt robbed these tombs, the tombs of kings who were considered divine. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm I, I'm one of those people who really think that human uh, need always conquers uh, fear um, and superstition. So I think that from the very first time that uh, a bunch of people watched um, a Dynasty Zero king lowered into his burial shaft, they were pla planning, some of them, um, how to get down there and steal what had been buried, despite the fact that this had been um, a living god um, uh, through his time of being on the throne. Um, they knew very well um, that these, these ama amazingly wealthy rulers um, inhabited a divine office. And I'm sure they didn't mostly understand um, the theology that we've been talking about here, but they understood that their stomach was rumbling and their family needed things. And so I don't think that there was a great deal of hesitancy 
about breaking into royal tombs. We, we have evidence for it from the very, very, very beginning. And just like, you know, in any, any religion today, people know it's wrong, but they still do it when they need the money. Yeah. And is it wrong? I mean, there are, you know, there are a lot of anthropologists who would consider um, that burial goods is underground storage and therefore is simply waiting to be reused. So what happens to the power of the king towards the end of the new kingdom and why? So the, the thing that's fascinating really about looking at um, the later part of the new kingdom is we see a country which begins to have a variety of problems, not just um, threats from outside, but a compilation of things and that um, begin to affect its economy very, very strongly. And by the time you get um, to the middle of the 20th dynasty, starting to see inflation take over in uh, the, the value and cost of, of grain rations uh, with which people were, were paid. And as the dynasty wears on, we begin to see more and more strikes by people who are working for the state, whether it's in the Valley of the Kings or it's uh, in other uh, temple locations. Uh, they're not getting paid, and so they're not working. But this is all going on at the same time that Egypt is experiencing a crunch um, that resulted from great movement in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Mid-Mediterranean during the, particularly during the 12th century BCE. And peoples moved around and peoples moved from parts of the Mediterranean uh, into what is now Libya, into what is the Levant, and then from there squeezed uh, into Egypt from both directions. Ramses III, for example, had to fight two wars, the Libyans to the west, and of course the famous Sea Peoples battle, which, which came at him um, from the east. The aftermath of that is really what what caused more and more problems, and that is that the uh, eventually there is a true settlement of people from Libya, from the West, um, into Egypt's uh, delta. They are culturally somewhat different. They have a, a, a major impact, and some of them, because they do not have jobs, are actually forming marauding bands that move around the country, terrorizing people. You find that in the big cities, such as uh, Thebes, which is actually starting to become a backwater, but it's still a major religious uh, city, um, the only safe place at the end of the 20th dynasty was the great temple of Medinet Habu, which is Ramses III's funerary temple, but it had the largest enclosure wall and, and buildings, actual houses, etc. People moved inside of there um, from Thebes itself uh, to be protected from these marauding bands. And then you began to have <laughs> wars that took place between 
the high priests um, of Amun, the people who were the rulers in Cush on behalf of, the, of, of Egypt in Nubia, the king's son of, of Cush. And at this point, um, the king is almost without power. And yet um, there is a determination, which is fascinating to see that the line of kings from Ramses III onward is all one family down to Ramses XI. And they're quite, they're on the throne for very short periods of time. Um, and yet uh, they really do follow uh, very much a single family as if trying to keep a king on the throne recognizable to the country was a form of stability in itself. And when it collapsed, which it did uh, during the reign of Ramses XI, then you have someone who actually declares himself um, a new form of rule over Egypt. And it's almost impossible to uh, prevent because despite this fiction of a ruler of Upper and Lower Egypt, Egypt has fractured so badly and there is now um, a powerful priesthood in the south in Thebes at the Temple of Amun and they have family relationships up in the Delta, but there's really nothing holding between those two. And so any kind of pressure on it um, caused uh, difficulty. So all of these things came to bear um, at the same time. And with the poor economy and all of the, um, all of this internal uh, warfare beginning, the, this rule, this dynasty of Ramesid kings simply um, could not survive. Um, and in fact, it, you know, it, the 21st dynasty was actually pretty stable when, once it got established, but it did herald a, a, a coming period um, of far less continuity. Well, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our discussion today. Uh, it was really fascinating. Thank you so much, Professor Brian. We really enjoyed, I really, I personally really enjoyed the discussion today. Well, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it too. And I, I hope uh, that it's wonderful to see this podcast series going on. And I know uh, that people will look forward to more. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the RC Podcast and many thanks to Dr. Betsy Bryan. Our next podcast episode will finish up our Kingship in Ancient Egypt series with the female pharaohs with our guests, Dr. Maria Mayad and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson. Please visit our website at www.rc.org for more information or contact us at podcast at rc.org. The podcast is also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.